welcome, this is Wireless Future. I'm Eric Larsson and I'm here as always with my colleague Emil Björnsson. Hello Emil, how are you today? I'm doing great. That's good to know. Um, Emil, is this episode, I think this is episode number 10, can that be correct? Yeah, it is episode number 10. So it's yeah. uh, starting to be a good habit to talk to you like That's this. A, that's amazing, number 10. Well, welcome back. Um, so today we're going to talk about terabits, terabit per second, and reaching the terabit per second goal. Um, as reading Emily your paper here, scoring the terabit per second goal, broadband connectivity in 6G. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, we'd talk about a few aspects related to what you write in the paper. So mm-hmm. a terabit is a lot, uh, many zeros. Um, so if we back up a step then to 5G, what is the peak rate in 5G? So when it comes to 5G, it will depend a lot on what you actually get in the real deployment because that could vary a lot. But if we just look at sort of what the specifications are for being a 5G technology, then ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, they say that the 5G technology should be able to, in millimeter wave bands, deliver 20 gigabits per second in the downlink and 10 gigabits per second in the uplink. 20 gigabit per second, I mean, even that is quite a lot, right? So what does really, I mean, you a minimum requirement. Uh, what does it really mean? Is that like for a device to be called 5G that it has to deliver this peak rate under some circumstance or? Uh, I think the intention is that a technology that want to brand itself as 5G should be capable of of doing that uh, if you look back at sort of 4g there were the discussions is lte a 4g technology or not uh, at least the first releases because it didn't follow all of those minimum specifications but it's still just a theoretical type of thing uh, you someone sets up a minimum requirement for the technology to satisfy and then someone needs to build a technology that can do that but then whether it's actually used in every base station or every handset can support it probably not uh, so it's still sort of in the best case scenarios yeah i mean it sounds like it really has to be a best case scenario right so i mean how is this achieved i mean 20 gigabit per second is still a lot Yes. So the, uh, on the one hand, it's sort of they set up this goal, and then uh, they do say that you don't need to follow their advice on how to achieve it. But what they mention in the specifications there is that they think that uh, you should support at least one gigahertz of spectrum in the millimeter wave bands. There's no network that has that right now, but uh, anyway. And then you should have uh, a peak spectral efficiency of 30 bits per second and hertz. So if you multiply those things together, you get 30 gigabit per second. And that is essentially then what you are dividing between the downlink and the uplink. Right. So I mean, 30 bits per second on Hertz, that's a lot. So how is that done? That's a good question. So uh, there's essentially two different things you can do there. You could try to transmit multiple streams or layers at the same time. Uh, and then in each layer, you could play around with how many bits you are uh, squeezing in. So say that uh, we are sending eight spatial layers with different polarization, different uh, directivity. And then each one of them is using a 64 QM modulation with some five over six channel code that gives you five bits per second in hertz. So then five times uh, uh, eight will give you something in the ballpark of what we are looking for. Then this is still the ideal cases. So we not, might not achieve exactly that in realities, but, but it's sort of given an indication of how they think that you would achieve it. 
Right, so the ALD relies on a combination of fairly high modulation order, which in turn requires high SNR, I suppose, or SINR, hmm. and spatial multiplexing with multiple, uh, I mean, spatial streams. Mm. Yes, and I think uh, 5G is actually supporting, I was mentioning 64QAM, supporting 256QAM uh, as well, uh, with some channel codes. You, you could, per stream, uh, push it up a little bit further than I was exemplifying uh, as well, but it's... Uh, uh, yeah, there's a multitude of ways to achieve those type of things. And I think in terms of a specification, you also only need to make sure that there is one option where you can achieve what the requirements by the ITU are. Right. So, I mean, do you know what sort of spatial processing and antenna arrays that are used to get all these layers in parallel? So uh, I, I think that is sort of what ITU is leaving to the one who is designing the network to, to suggest. But... Uh, uh, I would guess that, of course, you need a large number of active antennas at your base station so you can transmit multiple layers. But if you're going to deliver this to one location only, you also need the receiver there, which might be used a device to be able to receive multiple things there. And I think yeah, maybe a device with four antennas is more likely for the moment than eight antennas. So, uh, Right, and perhaps, I mean, you need like digital fully digital beamforming to do this right and we heard in uh, mm. was that in the last episode of the podcast where we had a guest uh, talking about fully digital now becoming a reality for millimeter wave um so that's quite amazing um so a terabit per second that's a lot how many zeros let's see giga is nine right and tera is 12 so yeah. 12 zeros um so terabit is like um What's that? I mean, a, I mean, a, a movie with reasonable quality DVD used to be like four or five gigabyte, right? So that's like 40, mm. 50 gigabits. So this is like many such movies per second. Um, why and when would we really need this? So uh, I, I think there are a couple of different uh, ways of answering something like this. Uh, one might be that we are pushing towards this target just so we could, on the average, get the more decent rate that we need. But then looking at use cases, uh, I think the first thing that could come to people's mind is that, oh, we would like this fully immersive uh, virtual or augmented reality type of thing where you can look around and get 3D uh, views of the world. But when people are really comp computing how much data that would be needed per second it, you can say how much do your brain uh, need in order to process things around it so it feels like it's reality it's probably much less than a terabit per second so uh, even if it might be that you would like to do everything uncompressed so you get rid of the delays because of compression algorithms it might not be the, the right use case yeah, still it's a lot. I mean, you know, even just a, I think that the hard drive on my PC is like a terabyte, right? So it's like 10 terabits. Mm. So emptying that hard drive over the air in 10 seconds, that sounds just amazing. And But perhaps it yeah. is these new emerging applications with extended and augmented reality that will require these enormously high peak rates. I think there are some other use cases that might be more uh, practically useful for the moment. Uh, so one is uh, what they call a data chask uh, scenario. Mm -hmm. So suppose your device is sort of uh, 
either you have told it uh, to download something for you or it has sort of been predicting that you will like to watch this and that videos and then for a less than a second time you pass by a small uh, link that is just very quickly transferring all of this information to you and that's what they call a data shock over just a few meters distance so are you suggesting i mean because at least i think i mean you and me in, in, in papers and also of our operators uh in discussions on 5g there's been a lot of talking about uniform quality of service like you have a steady stream of data that you can rely on that never gets interrupted but here it sounds more like this is intermittent quality of service where you you know you get a flash of gig terabit per second over half a second or something and then it's the link is dead for a while uh, is that a way to think about a terabit per second scenario i think that uh, in order to sort of deliver an experience of always being connected always have a great service there are a number of different aspects to that uh, one is to sort of build an architecture that would be better at get, giving us good uh, like guaranteed or minimum rates and i think we will go back to that in later episodes as well but another option is to build an application layer that is sort of pretending to be like that it's sort of oh i'm going to uh, now click on this video and someone has already predicted to download it in 4k quality so you, you it's already there that's a great point so in fact it's really the experience by the user that we want to be uniform. Okay, yeah, that might be something we should return to uh, in a future episode. Um, so how... I think I have one more know? use case that yeah. might be very... Uh, might maybe be the, the killer one here. And that is just uh, much more boring to say that you have a, a base station or small cell somewhere, and then you have a bigger base station somewhere. And in between these two, you will have to deliver a lot of data so that... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's sort of a backhaul link between them. And then that small base station would they'll spread out that data between many users. Or you can view it as like connecting your home or your office with a fixed wireless link, uh, delivering one terabit per second. And then within that office, you have a hundred people who are sharing that link in the end. Uh, so, so. Right, I see. So hauling, uh, backhauling large amounts of data. Well, I don't quite think that's boring. I mean, it sounds like a vital component of the infrastructure. But uh, anyways, um, so how could we, I mean, how could one reach this enormously high rate? What would it take to get a terabit per second? So the, the basic formula for data rate here is to take the, the bandwidth in Hertz and multiply it with the spectral efficiency in bits per second in Hertz. And uh, that tells us that we have these two components to play with, having more bandwidth and mm -hmm. having higher spectral efficiency. And uh, there it's also important to mention that sometimes... Uh, uh, maybe in computer science, bandwidth is synonymous with data rate. Well, it, it's actually not, uh, it, but you have this proportionality there. They, they're sort of viewing the spectral efficiency that's being given, and then you're changing the bandwidth is the same thing as changing data rate. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, data rate is bandwidth multiplied by spectral efficiency, right? So yeah. um, how about more antennas? 
mind. So that uh, is something that I then factored into spectral efficiencies. Okay. We can divide that up into two pieces as well. It's sort of uh, having multiple antennas, uh, which is improving our spectral efficiency by taking for each stream, we are beamforming the signal, we get a stronger signal, and that allows us to use a larger modulation format, like going from 16 QAM to 64 or 256, and then mm. having these multiple spatial layers sent through different beams uh, into so you can take the number of layers, multiply with the modulation uh, format that you get, uh, and that brings us the total spectral efficiency. Right, so increasing the bandwidth and increasing the spectral efficiency, and a main tool to increase the spectral efficiency is to use more and more antennas and more and more spatial streams. Right. Um, so, I mean, start with the bandwidth. So, so where do we find all this bandwidth? Yeah, so the... Uh, that is typically that the higher you go up in the frequency range, the easier it is to find a large amount of bandwidth. So if you say like, uh, uh, we need it in 5G, 1 gigahertz of spectrum, of course you can never find that below 1 gigahertz, because then you will need to use everything that exists. Okay. And the higher you go up, if you go up to 28 or uh, say 39 gigahertz, well, maybe you can find one gigahertz of spectrum there to utilize. Uh, and that also shows that people are considering going further up in the frequency domain. And there are some projects that have been looking into these type of things. And in the 90 to 200 gigahertz bands, uh, you can find probably 50 gigahertz that could be suitable. Uh, and um, if you have 50 gigahertz, you will need so sort of 20 bits per second hertz to deliver one terahertz, the terabits per second. And if you go even further between 220 and 320 gigahertz, so that's sort of towards the end of what we call radio spectrum, you can find another 100 gigahertz that seems to be uh, potentially useful for these applications. And then you, if you have t uh, instead 100 gigahertz, you only need 10 bits per second hertz to deliver one terabit per second. Right, 100 gigahertz. So yeah, so those were lots of numbers here. Let's see. Uh, yeah. So you're saying essentially that going to hundreds of gigahertz uh, carrier frequency, then there'll be lots of spectrum available because the, the relative bandwidth is, is much smaller there. Mm. Uh, so what, what sort of spectrum is this? I mean, if we go to like several hundred gigahertz, will there be licensed spectrum or unlicensed? Do we know that? Or how, how, how do you get your hands on that spectrum, so to speak? Yeah, so I, I must say that I, I don't know all the details around this thing, but I would say that this is sort of uh, something that uh, might not be entirely harmonized around the world, uh, but it's a sort of spectrum that is either not utilized because uh, it's not a good propagation condition there. There might be uh, things like uh, gases that are absorbing the signal so it doesn't propagate very far, or it is things that are typically used for scientific purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, might be used for radio astronomy, uh, like satellite services, maybe you transmit between satellites or uh, meteorology, kind of things. And uh, if you are going to use uh, this spectrum for now radio communications um, as well, then you probably need to find a way of coexisting with those existing things. Right. On the other hand, I mean, I suppose the range will be quite short, right? So you yeah. might not, you know, cause a lot of harm if you transmit with small power in these bands. Uh, yeah, um, as long as you stay away from this super expensive, uh, like uh, radio uh, astronomy equipments okay. uh, that are at a few locations in the world. <laughs> oh yeah, don't get anyone nearby there, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, how business models will play out in these bands, and 
if any of the spectrum ends up being licensed, then what will the cost be? I'd expect to be dirt cheap, right? I mean, per hertz at least, uh, compared mm. to the lower frequency bands that yeah. have been sold for like hundreds of US dollars per, per hertz in, in the last few years. Yeah, and this ITU, the uh, International Telecommunication Union, they are also having efforts in trying to harmonize the use of spectrum. Uh, so they uh, sometimes they have uh, the World uh, Radio Congress where they are sort of talking about what spectrum do we think is going to be used in five to ten years and what can we do in order to harmonize the licenses we can build one technology that works in most countries. Yeah, right, I see. So. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, I mean, we talked about bandwidth, right? So let's talk a little bit about spectral efficiency as well. And so, I, I think you mentioned like, did you mention 20 bits per um, second mm -hmm. hertz earlier? So how could we achieve that? That's a lot, 20 bits per second hertz. Mm. So if we just sort of look at uh, one stream of data, one layer, then uh, yeah, you can push up that to, to some extent. Uh, so I think the one of the latest Wi-Fi standards, the uh, 802.11ax, that is sort of the distinguishing thing, they support what is called uh, 1024 QAM modulation, uh, which if it's uncoded, uh, so everything is useful data, then you get 10 bits per second hertz just by using that modulation. Mm -hmm. Then you usually have coding on top of that. Uh, the problem with something like that is that you need uh, a uh, high signal to noise ratio to be able to decode it uh, so say 35 decibel of signal to noise ratio right so 35 db signal to noise ratio um gives you about 10 bits per second in hertz right i mean that's the shannon yeah. formula log 2 of 1 mm. plus d signal to noise um that's a lot um that's yeah lot. i mean i'd suppose that with um, 10 bits per second and hertz you'd be at 1024 quam modulation you'll, you'll be extremely sensitive to face noise for one thing and also it's getting 35 db signal to noise is not an easy thing i mean for one thing you'll have to be i suppose rather close to your transmitter and hmm. also there must be no interference whatsoever um is that really i mean is that realistic does this work in practice I think this is also sort of chasing the peak rates to show that it's technology is able to do something yeah, in the best cases. But uh, I mean, right here where I'm sitting, I have like a meter between my uh, Wi-Fi station and my laptop. Uh, and in those cases, you, you probably get that SNR that you need. Uh, but then you also, as you were uh, mentioning, uh, there's hardware effects that might be the ones that are destroying for you in those cases. So it's sort of having 35 dB SNR in a Wi-Fi, you probably have had that for a long time in certain scenarios. The reason that you haven't added this feature until now is that you need to be able to build radio equipment that ha are stable enough so the hardware effects are not the ones limiting you. I see, yeah, sure. Okay, so... Um... I mean, in a way, it sounds to me like this terabit per second is a bit of something that be you know nice if you could advertise, right? It's like you know yeah. you buy a car and it's advertised the car can make two hundred kilometers an hour. Well, it might if you know you're on the autobahn uh, empty <laughs> at night, uh, but there are hardly any other roads where you could ever go that fast, um, of course. And uh, hmm. um, so. What, what are, I mean, to be more specific on the practical challenges uh, here in reaching up uh, to this terabit, um, mm -hmm. would you like to talk a little bit more, 
but that in detail. Yes, I think we can sort of divide it up into three pieces. One is uh, sort of in the physical world, the propagation environment, what limitation it has. Uh, A second thing is sort of uh, uh, what the analog hardware could limit us for. And the third thing could be in the digital hardware. Which one should we take first? Oh, let's talk about physics and propagation. Yeah. So as I was mentioning, these propagation uh, or these bands that was identified, they uh, are selected so that you don't have a lot of absorption by atmospheric gases, for example. There's also things like rain attenuation that becomes an issue, in cer- particularly in certain bands, but essentially in all of these bands, that if it's raining, the, the raindrops are absorbing the signals, for example. Um, and uh, then... Uh, Sort of, uh, this might be also coupled to sort of the um, uh, the hardware, but uh, mobility becomes more complicated because you typically need to relearn the channel every time you move a say a quarter of the wavelength in order to be able to rotate your uh, constellation diagrams and things like that, and uh, that happens much more quickly as well. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, just the sheer thing of having uh, more bandwidth means that uh, uh, if you use the same transmit powers before, you need to spread it out over more bandwidth. And uh, mm-hmm. then you get a weaker signal per hertz. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to compensate for that by, for example, using uh, uh, more directive transmissions or short ranges. Right. So it sounds to me, I mean, you mentioned atmospheric conditions and uh, rain. I mean, this is obviously only relevant outdoors, right? I mean, that's where it rains. And uh, I'd also suppose that if there are some specific frequencies that where where absorption is is very high, then this could just be ignored. I mean, because we have anyway so large bandwidth. But um, the other thing you said here, I mean, mobility obviously will be a major issue, right? Because the the Doppler uh, scales with uh, carrier frequency and also the mm. range because of the reduced effective area of the antennas when you go up in, in carrier. Um, yeah, so do we have a feeling for, I mean, what ranges are we talking about here with reasonable equipment? So uh, we can talk about two different cases, I think. So so I was mentioned this uh, like Shosk scenario where you're going to download something over a very short distance, like five meters or so. Uh, and uh, uh, there you will probably have good SNR cases. And uh, if you have a large array, one of the, the limiting factors is that even if you have a large array, you need a propagation environment to mm-hmm. be able to uh, send multiple streams that can be separated. But if you are at short distances, uh, uh, there are effects that makes it possible for you to in sort of line of sight scenarios uh, send different beams to different pieces of the array usually when you are far away sort of if you beam form towards the receiver the whole array sees the signal approximately the same way so you cannot send multiple layers but over short distances like five meters that might be possible and then you don't have rain issues of short ranges. yeah sure of course so so you're saying really how, i mean short ranges right, like a meter or a couple of meters and hmm. um, scattering in the environment so that you can, we, we can, the equipment can really, or the environment can really support multiple streams. Um, yeah, but uh, over those short distances, you might be able to use, uh, uh, so you get a, uh, first of all, with polarization, you always have a rank 
two, so you can send two mm -hmm. layers. But then over short distances, even in line of sight scenarios, you could use multiple layers. So it's sort of this kind of uh, geometric near field types of <laughs> effects that are appearing. Yeah, sure. Given that the array aperture is large enough, then you could support yeah. multiple streams, um, even in line of mm. sight. Uh, obviously, that's a good point. Um, right. But so if we take the second case there with the uh, sort of fixed wireless scenario, uh, I've read people who think that you could deliver this over up to, say, two kilometers. Then it will be sort of sensitive to rain, uh, yeah. and you will sort of you put up a transmitter and receiver at fixed location. You have air directive antennas pointing. Uh, between them uh, and then if you should then be able to send more than two layers uh, you need a propagation environment that not only gives you the direct link yeah. but also some strong reflectors and uh, that might be a challenge actually achieving in all kinds of scenarios right interesting um so what other limiting factors i mean you mentioned electronics right both analog and mm -hmm. digital you want to say something on um the, start with the analog. Uh, I mean, yeah. so we got here the uh, um, power amplifiers. It's supposed to be a particular bottleneck, possibly, and their efficiency. Mm. Yeah, so, so uh, already uh, for millimeter wave bands, people are talking about how complicated it is to build a good power amplifier that is uh, efficient enough. I mean, all power amplifiers are rather inefficient but as you go up in frequency and have more bandwidth it might be even more so and if you want it to be a linear amplification you also need to operate it far from its peak uh, efficiency uh, so you, you will need to live with non-linearities from that case and then you mentioned phase noise sort of uh, the signal uh, generator who's creating the sinusoid of the right frequency is is not perfect so it creates uh, distortion of the signals uh, and there are other things like, uh, yeah, you need to s sample now your signal with an analog to digital converter or uh, the digital to analog converters with a high enough resolution so you produce a signal that is uh, uh, in the analog domain that looks like what it should have been uh, according to uh, theory. Yeah, so non-linearities and uh, um, yeah, that lots of challenges here. I, I mean, it sounds like right, mm. for, for electronics design. Um, yeah, and also sort of theoretical things like what waveform should be utilized. Mm -hmm. uh, is there waveforms that uh, are more uh, helpful in terms of, uh, yeah, sort of being able to use uh, simpler hardware components? Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that we often come back to when there's a new generation coming up. Should we use a different waveform or not? Uh, and so far we have sort of been using OFDM for a long time and have seen that the other option to waveform is not providing much of a benefit, mm -hmm. but it's something that comes up now in the discussion for 60 again. Right, I can imagine, I mean, because peak to average has always been a problem, right? And mm. um, OFDM, of course, from that perspective is, is horrible. Um, um, and uh, perhaps we'll see a revival of constant envelope sort of waveforms than for these applications. So that'll be uh, interesting to see. Yeah, I remember you had some work around that in the past uh, where it seemed like one of the challenges is to uh, sort of deliver uh, not only peak to average ratio that is constant in the digital domain, but also keep it in the analog waveform. Oh yeah, of course, constant envelope means constant envelope in the on the analog signal, right? Mm. Um, yeah. Um, how about the digital processing? Yes, so 
here I, I, I sort of wonder what uh, is possible to do with the hardware or not. So uh, say that we are now going to deliver data at 10 to 100 times faster than, uh, uh, than we do right now. And then we need to be able to have the hardware that can process the signal quickly enough. And uh, uh, I mean, one thing is that, okay, if you have one, uh, uh, say you have 50 gigahertz of spectrum, then you need to, to sample the signal at least 50 times, uh, at, at least 50 gigahertz. Uh, probably you would like to have some oversampling. Mm -hmm. And and then we, we look at, okay, what are the processes that we're using today? Well, for a long time, we have been using processes that are operating at a uh, three, four, five, maybe up to 10 gigahertz and then you, you have instead of trying to push that uh, uh, rate of operation you are trying to have multiple cores instead and mm. if we now go beyond those numbers there uh, it might be more complicated to build hardware that can handle the sheer amount of samples that need to be processed yeah of course and even i can imagine i mean the digital baseband processing even i mean if you mm. have a terabit per second and you want to do like channel coding in real time isn't that at yeah. some point going to be very expensive in terms of silicon area and power consumption yeah i think that is one of the, the concerns that of course there is a lot of improvements uh, going on in terms of shrinking the sizes of the uh, transistors and uh, okay. being able to use the surface area more efficiently but then people also talking about that Moore's law is is dying so we we might not be able to expect that we can push up those things uh, in the same mm. uh, pace as we are hoping to transmit more data uh, so maybe in terms of channel code, we need to uh, go back and think about what are the most efficient channel codes that uh, 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 that there are there. And I remember reading some point that, for example, in this uh, NASA, I'm not sure if it's the Voyager that they're sending out in outer space that are using convolutional codes because they are very energy efficient. Uh, potentially, it's sort of things that can be implemented very easily in silicon that would be utilized. Yeah, so you're suggesting that we might be willing to sacrifice a few or, or a handful or so, perhaps dB power efficient or, or efficiency um, in the com theoretic sense. I mean, that you know, we're increasing the gap to the Shannon capacity by a handful of dB in order to gain on computational power efficiency in the in the actual electronics that, that's an interesting prospect which at the surface might seem like we would go backwards right because coding yeah. theory has been in the last decades all about approaching the channel limit um well not entirely without constraints and computational complexity obviously but implementations of the coding part has never really been a dominant factor in the energy consumption. If you look, for example, at the modern, I mean, smartphone and the, the actual transceiver part, the digital processing, the transceiver part, just amounts to a small part of the overall power consumption. I mean, compared to the display and <laughs> other mm. uh, components in there is almost negligible. Uh, so that, that'd be an interesting shift. Yeah, so, so I, this is a trade-off that is sort of being discussed now, then whether it is a practical issue 
uh, 10 years from now or, or not, it will be interesting to see. And there is a possibility that this will be a bit like what we talked about previously with analog and digital beam forming type of things that we need to take a step backward in order to move forward with the technology. And then eventually the, the best the technologies will uh, come along, the hardware will be ready. Uh, but people like to push the, the limits faster than sometimes uh, some of the technology components are ready. Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it really sounds like striving for this terabit per second goal opens entirely new uh, needs and avenues for, for research and, and development. Um, I mean, we, we talked a lot about going to higher um, frequencies, right, in order to find the bandwidth. Hmm. Uh, would it be possible, I mean, theoretically or hypothetically, would it be possible to get a terabit per second in sub six gigahertz uh, frequency bands? I think theoretically you could uh, do that if you are having the right propagation environment and the right hardware. So, uh, I mean, to give some kind of example, a few weeks ago, Sweden had its auction for uh, 5G spectrum in the 3 gigahertz bands, and uh, they were auctioning out, say, 400 megahertz of spectrum there. So if we would have 400 megahertz of spectrum and we would like to reach one terabit per second, I think we need like 2,500 bits per second in hertz in spectral efficiency. Wow. Um, so if we say that we have like 250 users, they need to have um, 10 bits per second in hertz per user. So that's like two streams with uh, five bit each. Uh, so per user, that's definitely achievable, but you will need to have like hundreds of users. Right. So what you're saying here is that, sure, this is actually, well, possible, but it would have to rely on multiplexing to lots of users at the same time. So that this terabit per second is not the peak rate to one user, but the sum rate to something like you said, 250 users simultaneously, mm. which I suppose in turn would also require the use of a fairly large antenna rate, the transmitter, right? Yeah, so I think we are often talking about that you, uh, you should have uh, maybe four times more antennas or five times more antennas at the base station than the number of users you would like to multiplex. Uh, mm -hmm. So you might need an array of a thousand antennas or so, and then you need to spread them out well enough so you could uh, be able to send narrow enough beams so that uh, you can separate the users. Mm -hmm. I think we had sort of a crazy use case once where we were thinking about the Central Park in New York City, uh, where you have users spread out over the park and then you put up antennas on uh, some of the buildings around and they are together beam forming down there into narrow small regions around the users and then you can have hundreds of users and, and reach these numbers there. Right. I'm not, so, I'm not so sure that use case is so crazy, actually. I think it's entirely, you know, as far as I can understand, realistic indeed. And a thousand antennas is not that much, right? Um, mm. You know, that'd be an array of what, 30 by 30. And as you said, you probably want to spread them out to decorrelate the fading. And mm. uh, so again, I mean, here, a terabit per second, some rate or some, well, let's say some rate, is that the word? Um, at lower frequencies that would require spatial multiplexing to something like maybe 200, 300 users, which in turn would entail the use of an antenna array with about a thousand elements. So there's nothing, hmm. I think, in you know known physics or, or information theory or anywhere else that would uh, 
tell us this is not possible. I think it's entirely possible, and perhaps we'll even see it happening, you know, in in mm. in, in a few years or, or or decades at least. Yeah, um, so I think this is sort of maybe the the real use case of this technology. You have a, a base station at. at millimeter wave or below uh, 6 gigahertz that is able to spread out one terabit per second among a multitude of users and then to that base station you need to have a backhaul link and that Mm -hmm. could either be one of the ethernet type of technology Mm -hmm. or fiber technologies that can deliver that or it could be one of these very directive uh, one terabit per second links that we were describing. Sure, right. I mean, but there is a distinction here I think that's worth reiterating, right? Namely that of a terabit per second peak rate to a single user or a single terminal Mm. on one hand, which is we talked about with these high carry frequencies at hundreds of gigahertz and huge bandwidths and all that Mm. on one hand. And on the other hand, a terabit per second aggregate or some data rate in a cell, which is provided uh, at any given point in time, but split among hundreds of users, which in Mm. turn, I mean, and the latter scenario doesn't require necessarily large bandwidths and and could be accomplished even at sub six gigahertz spectrum. So that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, So when do we see or expect to see this happen in reality? I mean, the terabit per second scenario. So uh, one can only sort of guess around those type of things, but I think a general thing that if one look at curves on like wired and wireless technologies uh, in terms of their capacities uh, or peak rates, it's sort of that the, the wired technology is often like 10 years uh, ahead of the wireless technologies for delivering a particular uh, rate in point-to-point scenarios. And now there is the effort of uh, terabit ethernet that is going on uh, in the wired societies and uh, there they are they're hoping that within three to five years from now that should be available now there might be up at say 400 uh, gigabit per second and if we then add 10 years to that well then maybe 13 to 15 years from now uh, we will be able to have this type of links in uh, some years into 6g technology mm-hmm. yeah that's amazing so like 10 15 years you said yeah wow um all right uh, i think we are probably uh, um closing up here very soon but i was just thinking you know i mean your paper here is on uh, on um, t- scoring the terabit per second goal, right? Broadband connectivity mm. in 6G. And 6G, of course, I suppose, is a lot more than terabits. So what else is it that 6G will contain or, or require or, or entail? Yes, so so this is sort of an extension of a white paper that I wrote together with a large number of people last year. And uh, it's uh, is, uh, that to some extent 6G is now like brainstorming of everything that might be useful in the future and people try to figure out what it should be useful for and uh, also motivate why their research is uh, important in the future. But uh, one thing that you touched upon was uh, of course to bring up not only the peak rate but the more uh, user experience rate uh, called by ITU, what you can deliver to say uh, most of the users, even at the cell edge, there are only a few users that are not getting those rates. Mm. And then, 
I think that even if this uh, conversation was about like peak rates to one uh, transmission uh, over one link, probably it's sort of the massive access that is the interesting thing where we're going to have a large number of IoT devices. And it's often like even when you as a user thinks that you're using the internet uh, continuously, uh, you might be at the application layer scrolling your Facebook page continuously, uh, but then it downloads it in small pieces. So the number of users that are, uh, there's a huge number of users, but they are active intermittently. And as you have add more and more users to it, uh, we need to have a good way of dealing with large number of users mm. uh, that are just transmitting a little bit of data. Mm. So massive access, really huge numbers mm. of devices that perhaps sleep most of the time, but then wake up occasionally and send a short packet. And of course, expect an immediate response, right? And expect high reliability in their connection as mm. well. Um, yeah, so that's great. I think these are topics that we might want to return to at some future point in time in the podcast. Um, mm. So I think we might want to perhaps close up here for today. So um, this has been great fun as always. And I learned a lot as always. And thank you, Emil. And thanks to the audience. And don't forget to like and subscribe us on YouTube and see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.